Welcome to Cracking the Code. This is Ryan Skinner. I'm here with today's guest, Shannon. Welcome, Shannon. Thank you. Looking forward to uh, sharing some of my story with you today. It's awesome. You know, it's so rarely do we get females on here. Now, I don't know if I just scare women off or most likely it's that guys are more often willing to share their story. And because I think men don't really give it to them. Like, yeah, it's, yeah, but it's like, a, it's almost like a badge of honor. But I think a lot of women have shame around recovery or addiction. And I mean, for Christ's sake, it's a, it's a disease. A disease yeah. is a disease, whether you're a guy or a girl. And I think that I wanted to have more girls on because, because simply put, there's a bunch of people who watch their girls and they're like, oh, yeah, I wish you were more because it's mm-hmm. more relatable. Mm-hmm. No, I, I definitely think it's true that with women, it's it's different in terms of like the guilt and shame that you talk about because yeah. women go through a lot of different things when they're out running the streets in active addiction. Um, me, maybe it's because I'm a Charlestown girl and we're like guys, <laughs> uh, but but I'm I'm an open book and and I'm not ashamed and I'm not anonymous. So I, you fire know, away. I said that too. Yeah. It's funny. Somebody said something about how like, well, it's very common when women, they go through it, they, you know, they, they prostitute themselves out. This guy was like, can you imagine? I go, yeah. I go, somebody would have paid me for sex back when I was doing drugs. Hell, I'd probably do it now, but back then I definitely would have done yeah. it, you yeah. know? That, that was so a crazy. yet. That was a yet for me, thank but, God. But it's so common. And <laughs> yeah. I think so many people carry shame around it. And, I, you know, I had mentioned somebody who I dated in the past. And I remember thinking one thing of it. And as I've gotten older, I realized that, you know, we're all the same. You know, yeah. there might be a few different things and some bottoms that we haven't hit yet. There's others that I've hit that God, I would hope nobody hits. Mm-hmm. Um, so give me the, give me the you know, the, the beginning version. Like, you know, your childhood, what was it like? Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Whenever I, I share my story, I sometimes like get annoyed because it's so repetitive and so but at the same time like it's never going to change because that's my story the only thing that's going to change is what I do moving forward Um, and as many people who have heard my story I know that there's a lot of people that haven't Um, but like I grew up in Charlestown you know everybody knows everybody everybody knows everybody's business if you know anything about Charlestown Charlestown's one square mile um, is it one square mile, really? One, one square yeah. mile. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody know knows that. everybody's business. It's a blessing and a curse. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the one thing that I can say, like, about Charlestown that, like, I love and appreciate is that, like, when tragedy strikes, and we've had our fair share of tragedy oh God, um, yeah. over the years, is that we come together like nothing I've ever seen before. You know? Um, it, you know, I just remember growing up, like, you had to have like that kill or be killed attitude, even the girls, you know what I mean? If you showed any vulnerability, like a weakness, emotion, like you kind of like got shit for that, you know? Well, that Um, was that area. I mean, literally every girl I know from Charlestown could fight like a guy. That's how it was with someone. Yeah, you you had to like prove yourself. Girls could throw a punch as the guys could. And and so like, I grew up in a home um, with a single mother, uh, four children. We grew up, we were very poor. My mother was on welfare, working under the table at a rectory to send us to Catholic school because back then you had to send your kids to Catholic school. Um, My father was an alcoholic and an addict and was in and out until I was about 10. And so I have a sister that's five years older than me from my mother's first marriage. And so then there's me. um, And then I have a sister that's a year younger than me and a brother that's two years younger than me. And so like my role in the family and how people look at me is like that I'm the strong one. And so while I love that that's how people see me, and yes, that is a big part of who I am, it also is a lot of pressure because it makes me feel like I have no room to be human sometimes. Anywho, um, you know, my father, I remember laying in bed at night waiting for the doorknob to turn, wondering if it would be one of those nights where, 
the, my father would beat the shit out of my mother and the cops would come or he would hopefully pass out drunk on the couch. And so it was usually the cops coming to the house. And so what would happen is, is my oldest sister would run to the neighbors. My younger brother and sister would hide under the bed. And so I would sit on the couch with my mother and hold her at five <sighs> years old because that was my way of protecting her while he would just drill her. And so this is, so I believe when people talk about like the gateway drugs and all that type of stuff, I believe like trauma is the gateway. Yeah, and it's so, a big part of it. And so, yeah, for a lot of people, most, um, and so one of my, my early childhood traumatic memories is, you know, when he was done hitting my mother, he was leaving and I got up to go lock the door and I was the same size as the doorknob and he kicked the door in to come back and hit my mother again and the doorknob split my head open and my mom hid me in the bathroom with a towel on my head because she was afraid like the cops would take me. And so at that age, you can imagine. So I also remember when my father would get arrested, I would feel bad. Right. And so like I would, it was very confusing because why do I feel bad? And I'm so angry at him at the same time, you know, like yeah. then I started, you know, to think like as I grew older, like something must be wrong with me. It must be me. Something must be wrong with me that this man who's supposed to love, protect, and yeah. provide is doing the complete opposite. So something must be wrong with me. So, like, I grew up in my adolescent years with those, like, feelings of unworthiness and not feeling good enough and, you know, insecure, low self-esteem. Um, I remember I had my first drink at the age of 12. It was coffee brandy. And so I used to hang. So and this was the around the time when I started hanging out with boys. And so like I at that age, I felt like I was just like so ugly, like stupid, like not good enough, like I had just mentioned. And so we hung in this place called the pit in Charlestown. And it was near like the Edwards Middle School. And my mom used to have this friend that would come over who did drink. My mom didn't drink. My mom didn't drink. She didn't do drugs. She ripped butts like Isn't no other. is it crazy, though, how. Like, I look at it this way. Like, my mom didn't drink a drug yep. ever. It's fine. My dad drank it. I'm sure he did some drugs without us knowing, like, when we were real young. Mm -hmm. But my mother, you know, I used to say we hit the lottery. She didn't do any of that stuff. But she hit the lottery. She had two kids with addiction. Your, your mother had a husband, mm -hmm. a kids. It's, mm -hmm. it's crazy. It how is, they, it's crazy. There's something about them that tr attracts us. Uh, I think my mother, you know, I think my mother was struggled with her own insecurities. And she was always a warrior and, like, depressed and, and that type of thing. But... My mom used to have this friend that loved to drink. And so if my mom ever did have a drink, which was like once in a blue moon, it would be coffee brandy. So the woman brought coffee brandy over to try to like coerce my mom into drinking <laughs> with her. Into it, yeah. yeah and, the, and, and the friend is like tossing them back and my mother coffee just has brandy. the same cup there and like isn't even is pretending to drink it. So the leftovers went into the kitchen cabinet and like this became like my first sip of alcohol. And... I just remember, like, I couldn't wait to do it again, you know, because I loosened up. I didn't necessarily, I didn't like the taste. Oh, God, who does? <laughs> Coffee brandy, I'd be concerned if you did. I didn't like the taste, but, like, I liked how it made me feel. I like how, you know, I was able to loosen up and be funny and flirt, yeah. you know. And I just remember I couldn't wait to do it again. And, and so... You know, it progressed from there. Like, I drank with my friends every weekend, and I just thought that was a part of growing up. Like, yeah. you had to, like, well, do that and experience. Yeah, it was. And, you know, and then eventually, like, I started smoking weed and, like, taking pills. And then I found cocaine. And cocaine wow. was my drug of choice for a long time. Wow, was it really? Yeah, for a long time. And, and what I liked about that is that I could drink more. 
And I, I felt like it was like this truth serum. And I can tell you how I really fucking felt about you, you know, but, but I think I'd want to know how people I, felt I, about but the, me. It, the worst thing was like those late, late nights when you would end up with like those people that you wouldn't necessarily yeah, hang out with them, but then you were with them because they had more shit, you know, yeah. and you always have like that person that's like paranoid and looking out the peak hole, the yeah, person oh, that's yeah. talking too much and dominating the conversation and won't shut up and you're geeked out and you want to talk too. <laughs> And I'm like, why was this fucking fun for me? Right? Yeah. Like, and then the whole Oxycontin, you know, era, yeah. you know, and then I, you know, found Oxycontin and started doing OCs to come down from the late night to Coke. And I'm like, I ain't spending fucking money on Coke anymore. This yeah, is, once you, you get the OCs, you yeah, just submit yeah, the lights yeah. out. And you, you know how that goes. Like, you know, that was a very, very expensive habit, you know, and uh, I think a lot of uh, my generation, your generation, like, we thought like, oh, it's prescribed by a doctor. It might not necessarily be yeah. prescribed yeah, to me, but a doctor prescribes it, so it's okay. You know, it was marketed as like non-addictive, and it was being imagine, imagine, and it was being prescribed for moderate pain to like adolescents, even. You know, and uh, I don't know if you watched Dope Sick. I, I watched it. episode. that was enough for me. You know, I was, I, it, I lived I, it. You know, I, I lived I it too. I thought it was pretty well done, and so like even though I lived it, like I'm sitting on my couch watching it, and I'm like yelling at the TV. Yeah, so. it was sad how they knew what they would do. Like this was an intentional thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the effed up thing. The beauty of it is this. I always say there's a positive, you know, for everything that happens, I always heard there's a lesson there, a blessing. I, believe, I believe that too. This. And the lesson is also this. The lesson is for so long, it was people in the projects in Boston, mm -hmm. often minorities, mm -hmm. so nobody cared that much. So mm -hmm. the lesson is maybe how you treat other people comes back to you. Mm -hmm. The blessing is this. Once it hit the, the, the white, that wealthy yeah, yeah. white person in the suburbs, then it was a problem. Maybe it's what we needed to change it. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. But it took a lot. Oh, it was it was awful. But it was definitely heroin that brought me to my knees. Like, and oh, yeah. I I also remember like during the whole OC thing, like when I was taking them like orally, I would say, "Well, I'm not as bad as you because you're sniffing yeah. them." Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And then like I'm sniffing heroin, and I'm not as bad as you because y'all shooting it. And I think a lot of people say like, "I'll never stick a needle in my arm," but it wasn't. Well, Long course, before I, I did, yeah, yeah. I remember when I was taking pills early, and then I remember um, I never sniffed it until I ended up. I had a script for OC eighties because they found some cancer in me, mm -hmm. and when they gave me the script for OC eighties, one day I woke up and I was sick, and I called my friend. I'm like, I'm sick. This is my prescription. He goes, Yeah, but you know what? You're waking up. It takes a long to dissolve. Just rub the cording off. So I did that, and after a couple weeks, I was still oh, okay. sick. Yeah. They said, mm -hmm. Well, just sniff a little. No, I sniff a little. Then yeah. after that, I never <laughs> took it right. Then I remember when I ran the gig was up and I was out of money. I said, Oh my god, I'm so sick. I'm gonna have to sniff a little heroin like you talk about I'll go but mm -hmm. I just knew I would never put a needle in my arm that was one thing it wasn't mm -hmm. yet because I just wouldn't be a junkie mm -hmm. and then sure enough after sniffing it once I was like you know what I looked the other way and I let a guy hit me and for the next three to four months of my life my life you was hell it. Yeah. it just took everything I remember at the end watching a guy take a TV off my house my house was in foreclosure I had no cable anyways I said if you give me two bags of dope you can take that it was a big screen TV hanging on the wall and he just took it and got yeah. my two bags of dope and then uh, that was gone yeah. and then it was crazy so you know, you end up doing heroin, which heroin does what it's supposed to do. It breaks yeah. us. Yeah. It really does. Yep. I mean, and thank God, because I don't know if I'd want to linger in the ring with Oxycontin any mm. longer than I did. Because mm. that, if you had money, you'd go another three, four years. Mm -hmm. Heroin doesn't matter how much money you have. It's going to break you. Yeah. You know? Yep. It, uh, yeah. And so I have my, my oldest daughter's 24 years old. Her name's Lainey. And so she, 
I, I got pregnant with her at 19 and had her at 20. And so, like, I was with her father since we were 15 years old. Like, wow. our family has a long history. Like, my uncles were in his mother and father's wedding. Okay. And so it was that, like, young, powerful, like, possessive love. Yeah. Um, and I'm not going to say, like, we didn't have a lot of good times because we did, you know. But then, like, when drugs and alcohol are involved, you know how that gets. I'm fighting yeah. girls that he's around. He's fighting dudes that yeah. I'm around. And just, like... All that insanity. And so, you know, running around down the projects, making plays and like hustling. Like I think about some of the situations that I was in. Like I hung out with some guys that would like rob drug dealers down the projects. Like I just couldn't picture my daughter like doing doing some of that Imagine stuff. That though. No. We give our kids a different life. Like my wife gets very resentful, you know, about like how when we the life we gave my stepdaughter, her daughter mm-hmm. while we were together. Cause my my stepdaughter is very entitled, very bratty, very mm-hmm. privileged. And I'm like, so you want her to have the life you had where you said how horrible it was. And do you want her to do what I did? I mean, we used to rob drug deals. That's how we did it. That's mm-hmm. how you made you got when you were hooked on drugs, that's what you did. Mm-hmm. You, and you know, you want better for your kids, but you think we were just kids and the stuff mm-hmm. we got into. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I, I look at a 20-year-old kid now. They're a kid. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I still look at my 24-year-old like she's yeah. a kid, you know, but uh what had happened is, was, you know, I was had my own apartment, having parties all the time, you know, having people in my house. And so I remember, like, sleeping to, like, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And then, like, my daughter, like, in the morning time, she'd want to, like, get up and, like, yeah. play, of course. And so, you know, I always get, like, emotional with this part. But, like, she, I would just, like, throw her in front of the TV with, like, a DVD. I don't want to say DVD because I'm showing my age. But, <laughs> like, with a dry bowl of fucking cereal you know and uh i got a letter on my door one day from dcf and i was fucking bullshit and so why i was bullshit is because this is fucking charlestown who ratted me who ratted me out like i could tell you something about the person who called on me and so um you know a few weeks later i had to meet with the dcf worker i had my mother with me we're sitting at the kitchen table and i'm badgering this woman like badgering her not thinking about like what could potentially happen, but I need to know who fucking called on me. And so two minutes later, my mother slammed her hands on the table and she said, I called on you. And I know. Wow. And, uh, and That's pretty solid that she did that. I though. know, I know. And so like my group of friends growing up, like I had like all my friends' parents covered for them. Like they would cover for them if they were caught involved. Like, yep. you know, they would never call DCF on them if they had kids. They would cover them if they missed work for them if they missed work. Like my mother like just didn't do that. And so um, my mother got temporary guardianship of my daughter for two years and I was in and out of like different detoxes. My favorite detox was some of all detox. I will oh, really? say that. But like think about Mine that. Mine was DMS I would say like I'll go to I'll go to detox, but only if I can go to some of all detox because that's my favorite. Like who the fuck wants to have a favorite detox? Yeah, like yeah. my mother's right? called DMS Cab, DMS uh, Hotel. It's closed Wait, now. I know. Now it's um, isn't that what's going on? It's now? because of, no, yeah. it's clo- it's it closed because it's like understaffed. I don't know if it's gonna like reopen. Oh, really? Really? It's under like the Leahy umbrella, but oh, I didn't know that. yeah, yeah. So it was very recent that that just happened. Um, so I don't know, but you know, I was in and out of different detoxes. Um, I, I went to the Heritage. Uh, okay. Do you remember the Heritage? It, it, it was it was on. It was like one of when they still had like the all those thirty day programs. It was yeah. on um, Central, off of Highland Ave in Somerville at. Uh, Cambridge Health Alliance, where the Phoenix, where the Phoenix, I don't know if you remember the Phoenix Center. Yeah. So 
so I went there. Then, you know, I was in and out of, like, uh, wet shelters. I don't know if you ever heard of uh, the yeah. Access Program in Cambridge. It's at, for, at Albany Street Shelter. I haven't heard of that, but I've, I mean. So I went there. And so I remember. So what happened is the Access Program was inside of the wet shelter. So there was a portion of it that was, like, a dry part. But you had to walk through the wet shelter and interact with the, the homeless people in there to get to yeah. where you needed to get to. So I remember I walked in and it smelled like feet. It smelled like piss. It smelled like ass. And I'm oh. like, oh, what the fuck? Like, what did I get myself into? And then I got comfortable. I got comfortable. Like, it is scary. I what, got comfortable. What, was once, what the fuck is now way of life? I got comfortable. And so the woman who was like running the access program at the time, she's like, if you're 22 years old, if you're comfortable with being in a wet shelter, you have a daughter, that should be a red flag that something's wrong. And so like that statement didn't even hit me until like years later yeah. when I thought about it again. And, uh, you know, I eventually went to a program called, uh, you know, I was caught, I had warrants, I was yeah. on probation. Uh, my mother was like besties with my probation officer. Uh, I remember turning the corner, going to my house one, like going to my house one day. I was probably like a hundred pounds, running around Charleston with a hat and sunglasses, thinking nobody knew who I was. And there was literally like five cop cars out there. I'm like, why is there fucking five cop cars for like me, you know? And so then like I took off, and I remember uh, I ran into the PO down at Johnny's Food Master. Remember Johnny's Food Master? I yeah, I do remember. Uh, in Charlestown. And so I was down there to steal Infamil. I don't know if you remember the Infamil yep. scam. Um, and so he comes over to me and he goes, I've been looking for you. And I like looked around to see if there was any cops and there wasn't. And I said, catch me if you can. And I took off. And so, uh, you know, it was only a matter of time, just like running around, like living outside in hallways, staying on people's couches, like stealing, going to different like um I would drive around with people to different like stop and shops that had like citizens banks. You know how they have the yep. citizens banks because and me and one of my friends actually had a dolly like and then uh, orange like for fluorescent vests. Yep. Walked in to stop and shop through the citizens bank um, doorway and stole like crates of Infamil and like walked right out to go like oh really oh yeah because you can get like you yeah, can get you like half of them at like the Spanish stores in, in Charleston on Bunker Hill Street I don't know so then I uh, the Meridian House which is under the North Suffolk um, umbrella in East Boston so I don't know if you know anything about the Meridian House but it's my like, sister went there so, so it's it's, it's like the hot so there's different levels of care right when you go into like treatment there's like detox there's CSS there's TSS there's residential and then there's like TC and TC is like one of the highest levels therapeutic of care. community right? therapeutic community and so. It's very structured. They tell you what, when, where, how. Um, and so the Meridian House was temporarily in the Constitution and in Charlestown because it was getting renovated in East Boston. Okay. So my townieism and thought process is, all right, I'll go to this place in Charlestown because it's in Charlestown. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get the PO off my back. I'll get my mother off my back. I'll get DCF off my back and... I don't know. Maybe I thought I could go back to doing what I was doing, but do it better. Yeah. I just, I just couldn't fathom the thought of like me getting clean and sober or entering a life of recovery and never drinking and doing drugs again. I, I like it could work for you. It could work for you. It could work for anybody. I just couldn't understand how it could yeah. work for me. 
So um, I ended up going to the Meridian house. And so I remember like hearing people talk and saying, oh, I've been here six months. I've been here nine months. I'm like, how long? Where the hell are you? I'm like, how long is this place? And they're like, oh, it's nine to 12 months. I'm like, oh, I'm only here for 30 days. You know, and so I so I thought and so like I had no idea like what type of program the Meridian House was. I thought I was just going to go and like live there and, you know, not come and go. It's just it's better than a wet shelter. Yeah. And so (laughs) and so then I got uh, I remember I was I had caught one day. um, And so the judge was screaming at me, like screaming at me and, and said, I better never see you in this courtroom again. You stipulated to the Meridian House for nine months, blah, blah, blah. And so the Meridian House is based on behavior modification, right? So like you earn your privileges when the clinical, on individual basis, like when the clinical team says you're ready for this. And so it's not like, oh, you've been here for 30 days, you get to go on a pass now. And so they called me their most challenging client. And so what happened with the Meridian House is, is you have to confront yourself in the eyes of your peers. So there was a slipping system. So I'm like, I'm not ratting on anybody. You had to like write slips on each other. So if you left your coffee cup, oh, you know, Ryan left his coffee cup on a way up. Ryan swore at me like daytime. So, so that would drive me nuts. So I wouldn't do that. Right. And so then like what I would do is if I knew you were slipping somebody else, I would write the same slip and just say same slip because I knew he was doing it, you know, and um slips on shannon lasted like half hour 45 minutes so so they would yeah so so what happened is because i would get like combative i would put on a show i'd start calling people out and so like what should have been like you left your coffee cup up was like yeah well go after your mother (laughs) yeah 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 exactly so i was always put on restriction i was always put on lop which was loss of privileges and so then i heard a client talking to a staff member there and like overheard me said i give that girl three weeks and i said it to myself i said oh yeah and so like when someone tells me i can't do something that like fucking fuels me that's right right and so what also happened is the guy that was the program manager at the time, he literally, I, I believe this was like God orchestrated. He literally just became the program manager like a month before I got there. He's this Irish boxer from County, from Kerry, really? Ireland, right? Okay. I'm like, this guy's going to love me. I'm Irish. He's Irish. My grandmother's from <laughs> my Kerry. People. My grandfather was a boxer. And so like he saw the mentality and the entitlement that I had, like, and like, you could break the same rule on the same day at the same time and I'd get a more extreme consequence. Really? And if I questioned why, I got another one. And so Meridian House, they don't do this so much anymore, but they're famous. They were fa- So when you get your slips, right, you get a consequence, what they call it a learning experience. Yeah. And so they're famous for what's called an all day. So you have to sit in a chair for an hour, I mean, for 12 hours with the sign on saying, don't talk to me and you can't talk. That's kind uh, of abusive, though. No, I don't think so. Let me tell hours, you why. I couldn't sit still for 12 hours. Let me, well, you, you get off and go into the groups. Like, so when it's group time, which is all day, you can go in the groups. But, like, in between and at, until a certain point at nighttime, you have to be, like, sitting in the hallway in the chair. Listen. So uh, I remember, like, he gave me, you know, I was getting in trouble for something. And I looked at him and I goes, just give me a fucking all day. He goes, how about fucking 10 all days? And you can do them on the fucking weekend too. And so. Really? Yeah. And so what that, listen, what this taught me, it was, I learned how to sit with self. I learned how to take responsibility for whatever rule or behavior got me in the chair in the first place. Um, And then I learned how to identify feelings. 
that I had because I had to sit there, you know, and with, your feelings. with my feelings. And I, and I'm I uncomfortable look, hearing and, this. And I had to take responsibility for the behavior that got me in the chair, like I said. It's kind of like the hole when I went to jail. Uh, <laughs> Best equivalent I can be, like. So, so then, uh, th so he was so hard on me. So, like, also our beds had to be made, like, right, yeah. right when we, you know, he pulled everything off my bed one day because it wasn't made and made me carry it with me everywhere for a week, right? Because my bed wasn't made. I got caught being a sneak, putting everything in a backpack, and I had to do it for a month. And, um, you know, I remember he said to me, like, one day I was giving him some, like, excuse about something stop blowing smoke up me ass sean and if your aunt had balls she'd be your uncle and uh <laughs> just like always and so at the time i thought like why is this guy so hot on me like don't giving me such a hard time like pick it on me and i still have a relationship with him today by the way oh, I believe um, that, that um yeah you're talking about the gentleman from the meridian house you still have a relationship with him now i still have a relationship with him um but like I used to wonder like why he was so hot on me, maybe felt like he was picking on me a little bit. But I also think like looking back, there was like a part of me that liked it and needed it because I grew up without a father. Like a dad, yeah. And, yeah. Um, but I've said to him like before, cause he also made an amends to me like years later, cause he started thinking about how hard he was on me and started feeling like maybe he was like really too hard. And I said, I said, tell me, I said, why were you that hard on me? And he goes, because I fucking knew you were fucking tough as nails and you could fucking handle it. And he goes, and look at you fucking now. <laughs> <laughs> I love that fucking, because that's funny. Growing up, my family's from Newfoundland, so you hear that, I, the bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, I also had an amazing, like, uh, counselor in the Meridian House. Her name was Deb, and, you know, she, she helped me through a lot of things that, like, went on there. But I also, like... You know, through the throughout this time period, like my my time in and out of like detox and like you know holding facilities and treatment. Um, when I was in that place, the heritage, I, I I broke up with my boyfriend, my my daughter's father, and I was like learning about like relationships and like staying out of them. But I was also very close with his sister, who was like yeah. three years older than him, and so I was talking with her on the phone, and we were talking for like an hour. And then she says, will you talk to my brother? He really misses you. And I'm like, oh, like I'm trying. Yeah. So I get on the phone with him. We're on the phone for an hour. Then when I get off the phone with him, and an hour later, he calls me because he went upstairs and then found his sister dead, who I was just on the phone with. Yeah, so she died yeah. of a heroin overdose, mixing heroin and like OCs. And that was not OCs, uh, a Klonopins. And that, that was in uh, 2003. Um, and then I when I did finally officially... Uh, get sober. Uh, I've been sober since uh, May 15th, 2004. Oh, right. oh 2004. 2004. Yeah, I graduated Meridian in 2005. Right, so so Meridian, uh, like I said earlier, was a 9 to 12 month program. I graduated at 15 months. And so um, I broke every single rule you could have broke in that <laughs> house except for get high. You know, that, that's the only one that matters, though. Yeah, and so, um, and I almost got kicked out a bunch of times, too. Well, and the whole co ed, the other one, you. But for me, like they put us in these Colorado programs. You, the men's house, the women's house, mm -hmm. you go together for meetings, mm -hmm. but you have to sit across the, like an aisle. So you can't even touch each other. Yep. But I mean, of course, we'd be passing notes. I was 30 years old playing like, grab ass with like 20 year old girls like me while I'm just trying to save my life. I know. So a lot of people have a lot of like different opinions about like co ed, like programming, which I totally yeah. get, right? Yeah. So like, because if, we, sides, if we're not, if we're not using, we're focusing on the next best thing, right? Yeah. That's going to like, take our attention anyway so the guy who like built the meridian house back in the day one of the stipulations was that
that the house remain co-ed because in the real world you, you have gotta be to, able to co-ed. You have I mean, to interact with the opposite sex. I do see the other side of it where it was like women have other things that they might not necessarily feel comfortable, you yeah. know, doing or sharing like in front of men and, and you know, that's where they would have like separate women's and men's groups go uh, yeah, up and things like that. There's, like there's that. different like pros we'll and cons. We'll do the first three months separate houses that move them together. No, we you lived know, in the I same know, house. But I'm saying, yeah. I can see why we, they Men were on like one floor and women well, were on the other. I know that, other. but that yeah. also, you know how many times I've heard of pregnancies from that house? <laughs> I know. You know what I mean? I mean, it, it, unless they're going to stop paying the child care, they might want to take a little more caution. Uh, I'm just, yeah, I can see they want to step the back side. They need to learn to co- coexist, but maybe for the first two months this, this house, this house, they come together. You know, I don't know. Not I know. that I haven't figured I, out. I know. There's there's a lot of pros and cons to. to I mean, I would have loved it if I was yeah. in that place. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. I'm glad I wasn't. Yeah. Because I, I think relationships for, um, like, obviously, like, I'm going through divorce right now. And uh, I will tell you this. Like, people say all the time, like, you, you know, you must be size to be able to date again, you know, with technology. And, you know, you, you know, you think, you know, life's pretty good for you right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, are you insane? Like, for the next year, I want to get to know me again. Like, the mm-hmm. one thing I've been gifted through recovery is. Knowing that if you take time away and take time back and look mm-hmm. at things in your life, you go back so much stronger, mm-hmm. better off. And mm-hmm. so I said, for the first year, I'm going to date my daughters. Mm-hmm. I got two girls who love to get their nails that. done. They like to get yeah. their nails done. They like to go out to yeah. dinner. They like to go to Disney or wherever the hell they want to go or mm-hmm. Aruba. That's my priority. I mean, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong. We'll be hired. So yeah, because my natural proclivity is to just jump in and jump in a girl. Like I call it replacement therapy. Mm-hmm. That's what I would do. Mm-hmm. Every relationship we got out of it was the next. And that's how yeah. I get married. I was yeah. out of a relationship a couple yeah. of months. Somebody came back from out of the woods and comfort level was there for the past. And boom, next year they were married. Yeah. When I was with my my two oldest daughters' father, his name was, his name was Timmy, uh, you know, we were so codependent on each other. And, you know, I always, like, needed to be with him, like, all the time. And so... You know, when I when I got sober and like started to figure things out on my own, of course, in like my early recovery, you know how that is. You're going on yeah. getting in relationships and doing this and doing that. I did go through a period in my recovery where like I was alone for a while and I really got to like know myself. And I it got me to a point where like before, like, you know, when I was dating anyone else or like I met my husband, I was very cautious about like who I let into my life and the type of man that I wanted around yeah. not just myself, but like my daughters. Well, that's why I mean, I don't know you that well, but I know enough about people. And mm-hmm. I, I, my whole job is getting up. Literally, mm-hmm. when I manage people's money, I get to identify people, what they want, where their head's at. Mm-hmm. Um, my coaching, where I coach guys business-wise and stuff, or if I'm speaking to a group of financial people, trying to like coach them. Yeah. It all comes down to knowing people. So I can read people. I will tell you on my opinion. You can shoot me down this. If you didn't take that time to work on you, People like us aren't married to be married 15, meant to be married 10, 15 years. We're just not. We're meant to be married for six months, eight months. Mm-hmm. You know, you would have done what, uh, for example, my wife and I, we were, she had a fallout with her family. Mm-hmm. She didn't have a lot of close friends. I had just gone through a breakup. You know, we got together, codependency. Next thing I know, let's try to have a kid. Let's do fertility. Always just adding chaos to the mm-hmm. fight. And, mm-hmm. and we would, we were toxic together. Yeah, we, if we, I didn't we could take be good parents, co parents. Yeah. Yeah. You I, been in that. It would have been much different, definitely, for sure. Um, I'm grateful for that time. And so, like, I know that I, I'm okay, like, with being alone. Yeah. You know, like with sitting with self. I also, you know, did all those all so, days. So, <laughs> does your husband put you in a corner with a sign? Oh, no. yeah, I've been at home some days. You want to put a sign? Don't talk to me. Imagine being able to do that now. Go a whole day, like don't talk to me. Uh, but that's that's why. I mean, for the sounds of it, you have a healthy marriage, a nice marriage. Yeah. 
that's awesome. When you no longer need somebody in your life, they God puts somebody in your life that yeah, you want. That's and definitely enjoy. that's definitely what happened. So, you know, when I graduated the Meridian House, I went to a Soba House. Um, I had a get well job at Fantastic Sam's. I don't know if you remember. Know, it was Fantastic Sam's like was is like a hair cuttery. Hair cuttery. Hair cuttery. You know all you this like, No, I was the. I was my <laughs> what get well. We doing there? I was, it was my get well job. I was sweeping the floor. Oh, I, was checking I think people we just screw up people's hair. Yeah, yeah. So. And, and so, like, for me, like, I was, uh, my faith is very important to me. Um, it's, like, number one in my life. It's it's very, very important. And so I've always been God conscious. I just didn't know him like I do now. And I don't believe, like, in religion. I believe in, like, a relationship yeah. with God. Um, and so when I worked at Fantastic Sam's, there was, there was, <laughs> I know, that's what it was called. And the, the scent was coconut and everything, all their products were coconut. And so there was this woman that worked there, uh, and she was overqualified to work there. She was just like keeping busy and, uh, she was, you know, doing this other woman's hair. It was only her and I in the salon and I'm sweeping the floor and did I, did she do a fantastic job? She did a fucking fantastic <laughs> job. And I heard her say, the woman say to her, you must be so like happy. Is so good at what you do, meaning here, because she was really, really good at it. And she was like, yeah, but that's not my passion. And the, and the woman says, well, what's your passion? And she goes, well, I'm in the ministry. And so, like, my ears kind of, like, perked up, like yeah. I wanted to hear more. And so the woman left, and I goes, what do you mean you're in the ministry? What does that mean? Right? And so she started to tell me. And um, I said, I want to tell you something. I was about a year sober at that time. And she goes, what? I said, I'm a heroin addict. And so I was living in a sober house. I wasn't making a lot of money. It was hard for me to make ends meet and keep the rent and and she gave me a hug and she said, I love you. And she took me in to live with her for six months and wow. uh, in her living room. You know, I hope this doesn't scare anyone off, but I'm very bold about my faith. I, I got saved in her living room and I probably had like the best night's sleep I had ever had in my life. Um, it, that was October 5th, 2005. So it's funny that you say that. I'm going to interrupt mm -hmm. for a second. Mm -hmm. So I used to have pretty good faith okay mm -hmm. and then um i went through a relapse mm -hmm. and since then i've never gotten that faith back mm -hmm. i've gotten like glimpses of it and my buddy was a priest and uh he was a navy seal and a priest mm -hmm. badass guy carried a gun the mm -hmm. little ginzo kid mm -hmm. and um he died about two weeks ago mm -hmm. of pancreatic cancer oh, came out of blue. but um no there's just mm. but the thing was that even strained my faith more i'm like here's this guy who went from being a a Navy SEAL for this country gave it. He was he was dating girls. He's like, I kept getting this calling, so I had to put it all on hold mm -hmm. to go be a priest. I didn't want to, but I did. Um, and so a friend of mine, my buddy Sonny, was just saying he goes to this church in Danvers. It's just a oh, Great Rock. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. and um, and then one of my clients, his hey. wife. So so I was in a slump. You know, I'm going through divorce. I'm miserable about it. I don't. You know, we're fighting over stuff we shouldn't be fighting over. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like so, regardless. A client of mine kept coming in. His wife had died of pancreatic cancer. Mm -hmm. She, he would come in, look beat up, his clothes be hanging out, disheveled. Look, he rolled out of bed. He walks in one day, he's got this box in his eye. So I don't usually, this is a guy who lives in Manchester by sea. He had worked in the financial sector, very polished guy. And I look at him, I go, so-and-so, what the fuck happened to you? Just like that. He goes, what do you mean? I go, what the fuck happened to you? Something happened and you got God in your eyes. Yeah. So tell me what's up. So he sits me down. He says, you know what? I started going to this church. And he said, I, I started feeling God. Mm -hmm. He said, then um, I was trying to read the Bible. I couldn't get to it. So I read the, uh, what's that book called? The um, Purpose Driven Life. Per I love the Purpose Driven so he Life. He goes, you know what? I had this guy walk me through it. He goes, well, now you're going to be my guy. Yeah. I called to Marie. I go, where are you? What are we? So I, sure enough, I read it. And, uh, I would call him with questions on it. 
And I will tell you, I feel like something's perked up, but I was just saying the other day, I might go with Sunday to church. Cause All right, why don't you give it a shot? It couldn't hurt. Because Catholic church to me is just so much. I don't go to Catholic church you know, anymore. Yeah. So my church is actually in Somerville. It's called What's, Christian Assembly. Okay. So do you remember where, you know, where the Somerville courthouse is? Yes. So yes, my church was right in between the building, right in between uh, the 99 and the courthouse. It recently, we recently had to sell it because it was going to be seized by the city because of all the development. So we're temporarily in the Holiday Inn where the Somerville City Club used to be until we find a new space, which we're working on. Okay. How many people go? Uh, there's probably like 200 people in the church. Uh, it's The numbers have dwindled a little bit recently because of the move and people yeah. aren't like used to it. And then like the whole COVID thing. Um, but this really like is a big, huge part of my, my, my Are you family. into reading the Bible or you do? I'm into reading, I'm into reading the Bible. There's actually this show. If you, if people have a hard time understanding the Bible, well, they still have to find where to begin, where to go. It's like, I know. You know. So there's this series called The Chosen. I've heard of it. It's amazing. And so the man who plays Jesus in The Chosen, he is everything that I would imagine Jesus to be. And the way that the stories are portrayed, portrayed, it's not taking away from the truth of the word, but it's in a way that people like you and I can yeah. understand so that we're not like, okay, I'm, do I'm done with this. I'm going to try reading because I miss, I miss that conviction. Up until a couple of years ago, when if you ask about God, it's like this. I'm mm -hmm. sure it's God's aim gravity. Mm -hmm. Now I think this, I'm starting my sponsor and I where he always says, you're a step two guy that came to believe mm -hmm. that you're like, because I've had some successes on my own. But mm -hmm. what, I know, what I remember is this, Whenever a client comes in, I pray God, please allow me to be a service to mm -hmm. this client while growing up business. So I bring God into work. Yeah. I bring God into this when I stay sober for a day. God, but for some reason, there's so many areas that I'm, I don't know if I just check them out or whatever the word is, but I. Well, so like I said earlier, I believe like it's about like relationship, right? It's not about religion. Like religion is legalistic. Like I believe Jesus. Yeah, to came, control people. Yeah. Right. So, you know, like I said, I was always God conscious. And so, you know, um, when I started going to, so the woman, Karen, her name was, who kind of like brought me to the Lord, I started going to a church with her called Full Gospel in the Coolidge Street Project. She's still in your life? Yeah, I still talk to her. And um, anyway, and so then my mom ended up getting cancer. So, so I'm pregnant with my second daughter, and my mom ends up getting lung cancer. And so I, I'm a couple of years sober. Can I ask you a quick question? Yeah. Is the second daughter, is TB the... Timmy's the father of the two so you oldest. You two were still together, or were you just off and on? So we were off and on. Okay, so, so like I was sober, he was off and on sober, and yeah. so like when I got pregnant with my second daughter, I was like two, three years sober, and I didn't know then what I know at nineteen years sober. So like I remember like, oh, he's sober, I'm sober, we're gonna live happily yeah. ever after. Like he was a dressed up garbage can, and I was doing all this work on myself. Anywho, so my mom yeah. gets my mom gets sick with cancer. I'm working at I'm in a sober house, and I'm working at a the Cushing House, which was under the Gavin Foundation, was an adolescent yeah. girls program. I went to school to get like my certification in drug and alcohol counseling. And um, my mom gets sick. And what's the first thing I do? I make it about me. Oh, my God. My mother's sick. You know, like what? You know, and then. Yeah, but you were young. I know. Still too, I, you know. It's not about you. How old were you? 28 when my mom died. So, so how old were you when she got sick, though? Uh, 27, 20. So, so well, she, if you got sick, what do you expect your daughter to go through pain? I know, I know. Yeah. But there was a part of me that was, like, contemplating and, like, getting high and, like, people should understand yeah, that. You, right. You, people probably would, but right. they're not I know. But you. I was also pregnant, so I also think that that was... Thank God. Thank Good God. Timing. Right. Yeah. Wow. So uh, you can imagine it was very difficult to be three years sober. My mom died at home at hospice at 55 years old. So here I am. I'm pregnant. My mom's dying. I'm bringing one of the most important people in my life into the world. 
while losing one of the most important people at the same time, right? And so, and I'm only a few years sober and there's all these drugs in the house. And oh, so, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, and so, so um, I remember, like, my mom was so heavily medicated that if you didn't know her, or, like, you wouldn't really be able to understand her. But, like, she kept talking to me about the turtle on the Discovery Channel because the TV was on. It was the Discovery Channel. And I'm like, yeah, ma, the Discovery Channel. Um, I mean, the, the turtle, the turtle. And so, a month after she died, I had found a card that she had sent me three years prior when I was in the Meridian house. And it was a picture of a turtle with the Band-Aid wrapped around his shell. And it said, it's not the speed that matters, it's the getting there. And like, that's how I got there. Because when I was in the Meridian house, everybody was moving ahead of me. Everybody was getting over. I was always getting in trouble and I just couldn't understand it. And like, I just didn't realize that like your journey's your journey and my journey's my journey. And like, it's not about the speed. It's about like the getting there. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, like what a gift, right? That like my mom, so my mom gave me my three year medallion and died eight months later. <sighs> right. So like, she didn't have to worry about her daughter anymore. She was sober and clean and I healthy. Was sober. And you were about, you were about uh, yeah. That. I was sober and you Thank know, God she did what she did. Exactly. At 55, those kids would have nobody. If you I know. There. I know. So looking back, so, um, you know, thank God for that. So I was able to. How like, long be, after that did your husband, I mean, your boyfriend at the time get so, passed? So that's, um, so throughout my like recovery, like I've probably, I've outlived all my childhood friends. I've Isn't that sad? And you're what, 40 years old? 42? I'm 44. 44. And you men, men know to aim low with well, age no, and weight with women. I, that, but, I, I was but, honestly trying to guess. I was but, trying to do the math for when, how old you were. Okay. Old, how you are now. I would be an accurate. No, you're looking actually younger. I would have guessed you in your 30s until I added up the recovery Thank time. You. And, I, like, I think, I think getting sober, sober at, at 25 yeah. really, like, really, because I, I care about, like, my, what I put in my body and, like, taking care of work out, taking care of myself. Fuck yeah. I existed for so long. I want to live. Yeah. Yeah. I did my first cold plunge last week uh 40 degree water for four minutes four minutes it's yeah that's a long time and so like the first 30 seconds i was in shock yeah. uh, but then i just really got focused and and did some like box breathing i felt so good after really i want to try it i was thought about sweat house in assembly row so yeah. sweat house it's a it's a um it's a patio place right? no they have like infrared saunas so they have like these little suites you can go into and you go in the sauna, you take a vitamin C shower, they have the cold plunge rooms, it's awesome. I get it, because I thought about buying a cold plunge. So at my basement, I put a gym ones. in my basement. Yeah. So I thought about putting a cold plunge in my basement and an infrared sauna. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, I was like, maybe I should try it once. Yeah. Because I, I take cold showers, but I'll say I went into a cold bucket after this, I did this boot camp once at the end of the mm -hmm. week. You go into this bucket you have all ice water yeah, and you come out that's what it water. is. Yeah. I was like shaking, like I couldn't even stay in there. I it increases like, your dopamine, like really. So it yeah, works. it increases your dopamine. It really helps with like any aches and pains, muscle recovery. Really? Yeah, it helps with like anxiety. Did you stay in for three minutes or a whack four minutes? No. So the first time, most people only can do like thirty seconds to like a minute, okay. maybe two. But um, I just, you know, the girl was in there with me, kind of like coaching me. She was in the water. No, she was in the room. So how big is this bucket? I have a picture. All right, well, I want to see the draft. I'm very curious. Because um, I want to do you'll it. Fit in. Well, that's the thing. I mean, is there enough room that I'm not going to be yeah. claustrophobic? No, no, it's pretty cool. But anyway, so um, where was I? So I've gone through more in my recovery than I than I probably have in like my active addiction because I've lost. So I've done more eulogies than I've been to weddings <sighs> and baby showers. Is that sad? It's listen. So like, it's a lot of pressure when someone asks me to do a eulogy, and a lot of people have asked me. And but I look at it this way: um, 
if that's the last thing that I can do for some, what an honor, right? That they would ask me and, and to be able to speak to someone's memory. Uh, if that's the last thing that I can do for somebody, um, then I'm going to, I'm going to do it. And, and, uh, the other things I've done. So like over the years, I've probably ra- I've raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for families who have lost a loved one to a substance related cause who didn't have the means to bury them. And so I'll tell you this, mm-hmm. anytime something like that comes, comes up. Yep. Well, just, I'm going to, I, just like the make a wish foundation, whatever they have, they have a kid that's going to Florida mm-hmm. and they can't afford it for the parents to go. Mm-hmm. You know, usually they try to do fundraisers. Say, Fuck that noise. Call me. I'll send okay. more parents. Right. Um, I can't always. I'm not gonna lie. You can't call me every time. You get no, I know. But like last year, we sent three families to uh, the parents, three families, the kids. And I go see them before they leave. They're all happy. And I'm crying because like, this little kid was dying, and I'm like, yeah. and my parents are smiling. Little girl smiling. Like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. But you know, no. So, so the good. Th- one of the good things that you know is my community trusts me so much that you know when someone passes away and they can't afford to bury them or have like a funeral they come to me to do like these GoFundMe's and I I always get the money raised and they trust me because I provide like a breakdown of everything. I make sure the funeral home gets paid. Uh, but but GoFundMe also takes a percentage and then there's like a lot of red tape like when you're withdrawing like so much funds and you don't have time to wait. When That's right, yeah. So I just started my own nonprofit about two months ago. It's called Scars in Heaven. And so there's actually a song called Scars in Heaven. If yeah, you ever want to listen to it, it's 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 uh, by the casting crowds. And so what it means is in this life, we all, you know, have suffering and hurt and pain and brokenness and scars. And in the next life, there'll be no scars. There'll be no such thing as broken and all things will be made new. So like through that, I hope that I can comfort the families that are left behind. So I actually have my first fundraiser coming up. I'm giving myself a plug. Um, <laughs> yeah, give it, honestly, I, I'm surprised how many people who've come on this and made money off it. Not um, you, I haven't, but everyone else has. Uh, so, so I have my first like little mini. Where is it? It's at Sweat House Assembly Row. So it's a so roof- you throw a bunch of people in cold water. You want no, it's okay. a roof deck workout. And so there's three different workouts. It's on Saturday the 23rd one's at 9 a.m one's at 10 a.m and one's at 11 a.m and so i i've gotten uh 25 sponsors um so each per each uh organization or business sponsored a station uh they're going to be on their, their logos will be on the t-shirts and then there's a complimentary sweat sash or cold plunge to use whenever um but if anybody wants to you know i don't have an official website yet but we i do have social media instagram scars in heaven and facebook scars in heaven and the venmo is at scars in heaven if anybody wants to donate but the mission is to compassionately lift the financial burden for families who have lost a loved one to overdose let me ask you a question yeah because this is gonna be something that people are gonna wonder ask themselves how do you know if they have the means or not I I know the family okay. personally. No, that's and so, I so, um, so, I, so the other thing that happened is is like I met like randomly like met this lawyer who put this whole nonprofit together for me. Right. Um, so I believe that that was like God orchestrated, and this is something like God wants me to do. I also wanted to want to be able to provide sober living uh, scholarship opportunities for people who are in the pro- in their recovery process and trying to like transform their lives while yeah. also educating people around addiction in in overdose so. no that's huge i mean so for uh, we do a thing with guys that go so i used to run a program at the jail mm-hmm. and any guys that graduated my program and went to a sober house or halfway house mm-hmm. i would pay three months i'd mm-hmm. buy them three outfits i'd pay three months of cell phone yeah and then after three months they had to carry themselves but i always got my job too i'd yeah. be either a landscaper i got my yeah. duck of donuts um so we do a lot with like guys come to people i have a client recently who, who their son needs to go to recovery they mm-hmm. have they have a couple bucks these people but they are not big clients mm-hmm. 
Um, so I said, well, if he goes up to Plymouth House, I'll get him a scholarship mm-hmm. for a portion and then the difference I'll split with you. Mm-hmm. So we do a lot with that. But um, the thing about the, the deaths, I, that's something that's of interest to me. And I think a lot of people watch yeah. it. That's why I asked because for me, I, I can kind of read through shit. Yeah. Like I would just ask to meet people. And, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll I would meet with them. There's going to be a process too. But my thing is like, when people watch this, I want them to know that like it's, it's vetted. They're not yes. just somebody going up, hey, anybody. Oh, no, of course. Some people think my kid's an addict, so why should I have to pay, pay it all? You know? No, 100%. So it's it's some, it is something that's vetted. Yeah, not that um, I doubt it because I know, but I want people, you know, you'll be surprised if people want to donate, pe- but they'll find a reason not to. Yes, this is of course. Yeah. So like I said, I've raised like hundreds of thousands of dollars for families with ties to the so Charleston community. Um, and so that's the other thing is like, while I, you know, what was meant for my harm, I believe God is using for good. Um, I worked for, I just, I mentioned to you earlier, I worked for Mass General uh, for 14 years as the program manager of addiction and recovery services. I started out as like a community navigator. And so I worked for this organization called the Charleston Coalition. And so that was under MGH and it was like, we focused on community health. Um, and so they they modeled care after my successes throughout the entire MGH system. And I actually developed the Charleston Recovery Court with my former probation officer. So That's pretty cool. that, that, that judge that I told you about earlier who said, I better never see you in this courtroom again. Uh, after I graduated the Meridian House, I'm in a sober house. I'm working. I'm volunteering at Rosie's place to pay back court fees and money that I owe. The PO calls me. Miss Lundeen, you better come in here. You might go away for 90 days. You owe all this money. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm sober. You know, we think we're sober. We don't have to pay for the consequences of our action and active addiction. And I said, is that judge there who yelled at me? And he said, well, when isn't he here? He's on his way in. You need to get in here. So I go in. It's not that judge. Okay. The judge who was on the bench said, do you have the money, Miss Lundeen? And I'm like, oh, my gosh. My PO at the time goes... With all due respect, Jim Ron, she has 18 months sober. She graduated the Meridian House. The judge goes, come over here to me right now to the side, to the side by. He goes, is this legal? Like, am I supposed to be talking to the judge at the side, like, without a yeah. lawyer? Like, I'm, I was clueless about the court system. So I go over. Nobody can hear what me and the judge are talking about. And he leans down and he says, you graduated the Meridian House? That's a really tough program. I said, yes, Rana. He goes, you have 18 months sober? I said, yes, Rana. He went in his robe and he pulled out his 25-year medallion, just showed me. He said, you're off probation. You owe no more money. And so I didn't, I was so out of it, right? Like, I still didn't figure out that my PO orchestrated that. What a funny one. Very similar. Yep. I'm on probation. I'm, I just get out of jail. Mm-hmm. I have an open case um, where I poked a kid. So, like, you know, mm-hmm. I coo back to jail. The DA is asking, or the ADA is asking more time. The judge, Marian Henkel, who's a judge when, when they were going to release me on parole, I said, Your Honor, I fight my lawyer. I said, Your Honor, if you let me go home today, I will relapse news. If you hold me in jail to get me treatment, I'll be okay. She said, you want to be held in jail? She goes, take your lawyer's advice. I said, Your Honor, if you hold me in jail, I will come back and I will pay it forward. Mm-hmm. She goes, all right, that's what you want. I wish you the best. And, you know, and I have. I've been involved in the heat program and all mm-hmm. that. Fast forward, I'm on probation now. We're going back to court for this. And now the ADA really wants more time for me. And the judge is like, well, he's just good. He's been sober over a year now. This is, he was a heroin addict. He's doing well. She goes, Your Honor, he did this, this, and this. The judge says, Mr. Skinner, would you be willing to take time served? And it's a felony, but it's time served. You won't go back to jail. You're sure? Hmm. She goes, I'm positive. I said, yeah, I would like to do that then. She goes, okay, we're going to take a recess. We'll meet down the first floor courtroom. 
walking by the probation office and my PO who and I, he and I hate each other. I actually put my hands on him. I mm-hmm. threw him off a wall and Vinny Pierre was slamming me off mm-hmm. wall. He goes, Ryan, he can put you in jail. You're an idiot. Walk by and Mike goes, hey, Ryan, uh, what's going on? I said, they gave me time served. I don't have to go back to jail. He goes, time served, huh? He goes, you know, I'll be in the courtroom. I'm like, Mike, don't fuck this up for me. Mm-hmm. He walks in. He goes, Your Honor, can I interrupt for a minute? She goes, yeah, what's going on? He goes, I've never seen a guy his age come back. You know, guys in the late 20s, early 30s, it's hard to come mm-hmm. back. You're older again. He said, he's finally sober. If we give him a guilty on this, he can't go back to his career. So mm-hmm. I don't know what he'll do. And then he can have more problems. Can we give him a quaff on this? Yeah. Three, three years probation. So the judge said, Mr. Skinner, you're a lucky guy. Three years. Well, nine months into probation from there, I go in and I, I don't have my fees. So I tell my probation officer, I can't pay. I don't have any money. Like, I'm broke. He said, all right, we're going to go to the courtroom. So I go in and they clear the courtroom. And I'm like, fuck, last time they cleared the courtroom, I got shackled up. I'm yeah. scared to death. I'm like, it's 200 bucks. I don't know how, like, you know. I go to the front and uh, there's a judge I hadn't seen before. And Mike's, my probation officer is behind, beside me. He says, it's going to be all right. I go, Mike, I don't know if it is. He goes, I <laughs> breathe. And uh, a hand goes up. So the judge says, you have no, any fees. You're behind three months or whatever. I go, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. I don't need money. I'm trying to get work. And a hand goes on my shoulder. It's that judge. She came in on her day off. Aww. She goes, I want to vouch for him. Let's waive his fees. Let's wrap up, wrap up his probation right now. I still all straight. go, no, no, no. I got to stay through the rest of my time. I'm sorry. But I have to do it. She goes, listen. Uh, listen to Mike and Mike goes Ryan if you get in a fight you bump into something you can go back to jail mm-hmm. let us wrap it up put mm-hmm. your ego aside so I did and uh, isn't it funny mm-hmm. how the judges the people that's why when people talk to me about the court system I'm like if you're struggling in your own probation yeah. go to your PO yeah. go to the chief and say listen I can't stop doing drugs yep. what do we do yeah yeah. so so that happened with that judge and, and then like I told you when I was in that role at uh, the Charleston Coalition I took it upon myself to start going down to the court. So my role in the beginning when I was the community navigator was just to connect people to the appropriate level of care and kind of like hold their hand and navigate them through the systems. I took it upon myself to start going down to the court with my clients and advocating, That's a big thing. advocating for treatment as opposed to jail time. And so out of that, my former uh, probation officer, uh, other members of the probation department and, and, and people that I worked with at the Charlestown Coalition developed the Charlestown Drug Court, which is now the Charlestown recovery court in 2012. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. What exactly do you do now? Because I think I'm a little confused. So I know. Now, so I work at, um, so I'm the recovery of, um, I'm the director of recovery and community engagement at Chapters Recovery Center in Danvers. Yeah, so I I left uh, MGH about two years ago and I started this new um, role. It's coming up on two years in January in Danvers at Chapters. So I have like a dual role where I do like group therapy, individual therapy, but I do a lot of like, it's important for me to engage with underserved populations and nonprofits and like do like community events and that type of thing. So I'm not like business development side of things. I'm just more like trying to promote the chapter's brand uh, while engaging different populations. I like that you work with underprivileged. I always say this. What defines you? What defines me? Mm-hmm. It's not how I, what I do for my clients. Can I get yeah. paid to deal with them? So mm-hmm. that's of course I'm not gonna be an asshole, right? Mm-hmm. There should be. It's what you do for people who can do nothing yeah. for you. Mm-hmm. Like that's what defines a person. Yeah. I think that's great. And going to court with people, I don't think like some of our listeners that haven't been on the, through this world, they'd be like, "Well, why would they go to court? How bad does that mean? Yeah. It's a court system. It's fair. It's this. It is the scariest fucking thing. Yeah. Going to court made me scarier than going to jail. Mm-hmm. 
And mm-hmm. I didn't like jail, but mm-hmm. I mean, going to court was just mm-hmm. like, because you just never knew what was going to happen. Even when you want to got off, you were just like, I, mean, I had a big yeah. trial in New Hampshire one yeah. time in Superior Court, and they, they were looking to smoke me. We had a bench trial with mm-hmm. jurors. And I remember going back up to the jury to read the thing, and I remember being like, holy fuck, I could be doing three years upstate in New Hampshire where yeah. they like bang cows and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was like, this is hell. Yeah, no. I, and I, you know, I've, I've built a pretty good like reputation within like the, the BMC court system with like the judges and the BMC. Pro- Boston Municipal okay, Court. Sorry. So, like, Charlestown, the Charlestown is a division of the Boston Municipal gotcha. Court. The central division is over at uh, New Shotton Street by Haymarket. So, Somerville and, and, and uh, so I Uber, have been, is that Middlesex? Yes, no. yeah, yeah, sorry. yeah. So, okay. I have worked with the Somerville uh, Court a number of times with individuals from Somerville <laughs> who I've worked <laughs> with over works. the years. Um, but, so, yeah, so I've been working at Chapters for about two years now. Um, I also am part of the Charlestown Trauma Response Team since 2016, so which is also falls under the Charlestown Coalition where I used to work. And so what that is is whenever a traumatic incident happens in the community, whether it's community violence, gun violence, homelessness, uh, addiction, um, overdose, anything, then you know we respond to like the individuals and the family and try to connect them to the appropriate supports and resources, even like basic need type of stuff. Um, I also do um, a grief group, and so it's it's under the Sun Will Rise Foundation, and it's specifically for people who, regardless of what your relationship was to them, uh, specifically for people who have lost loved ones to overdose. Um, and so they found that there was, like, all these different types of bereavement groups for people who lost loved ones to cancer, yeah. suicide, gun violence, and there was nothing for individuals and families who have lost a loved one to overdose, and yet that's, like, the le- leading cause of death. So... I run is that. it really? Yes, of course it is. What do I know? I think cancer would be a leading cause I, of death. I, I, uh, I run that group once a month. Uh, I kept saying, uh, well, my suit 3X, I kept saying, you know, she had a really hard time when her brother overdosed last year. Mm-hmm. Especially they ended, they hadn't talked for five, six years. When they did talk, it was hate, spewing hate. Yeah. And uh, before that, a couple of years, her mother committed suicide, also oh, an alcoholic. And gosh. I used to say to her all the time, you know, you should get grief or go to, she, you know, I used to say go to AA, NA because yeah. she had her own stuff in yeah. life. And um, just something because she had so much pain through all that, yeah. and she just didn't send send her over. She can come to no, my this, room. No, at this point we're in a different place. This is a long time ago. Yeah, no. uh, I mean, if anybody is ever interested in, in coming, it's what, it's once a month. It's the third Wednesday of every month at six p.m. at twenty seven Devon Street in Charleston at St John's Church. Um, and so we probably have a, it's a very intimate group. So there's probably about ten to fifteen people there. Which is best. Yeah, it is. It is the, the best. But yeah, and I've been facilitating that group since uh, with my co with the co facilitator since like 2014, 2015. Um, so how do you do all this in run a life? Look with your kids. Obviously, that is life. I, I figure it out. Like I, you know, I, fi- I, I it is hard, and I figure it out as I go. But I'm also a person that like. You know, I was saying earlier, it, it's never too late to get like clean and sober. And but I'm so grateful because I realize like it's not often that it's a girl a who is from Charlestown that was an IV heroin user get it at 25 years old and still have her whole life ahead of me, ahead of her. You know, so I've I slept my life away. You know, a lot, and so I I just want to live like you said. Yeah, so that's why I get that, I, and I want to live with purpose, and I want to be remembered for how I lived and not how I died. And uh, that's your legacy. You know, like I, I told you before, like I've lost so many friends. Um, when the father of my my children died, he died in 2016. I was 12 years and he sober. He died of an overdose. Of an overdose. His brother died of an overdose in 2013, and his sister and in his 2003. Sister, Jesus, those parents. Yeah. So and and so like I did their eulogies. Um, 
you know, I was 12 years sober and he was living out in California at the time and he had like 18 months and he was staying with this couple that he met in AA that had like an extra room. And I talked to him the Monday before he died. And so he was asking me, can I talk to Liv? That's my second daughter. And I was like, yeah, she's with their math tutor. You can talk to her in a little while. And he just kept telling me what an amazing mother I am and how grateful he is that I'm the mother of you his children. Um, I don't, I don't know, maybe. And so, but one thing he did say to me was like, I was at a doctor's appointment when we were texting cause I had found like a lump in my breast that was nothing. And so he asked me if I was scared and I said, no. And he goes, why not? And I said, cause I have a big God. And he goes, how do I find him? And he didn't talk like that. He said, how do I find him? And I, I told him how I believe you find God and like how I believe you ask him into your heart. And so that was the last time I talked to him. Then I'm in my car a few days later and I get a call from the woman, that he, the wife of, the, of where he was staying. And so I didn't even realize what she was saying to me on the phone. For some reason, I was thought she was Stop. telling me he robbed her. And I'm like, well, lady, like, what do you want me to what do? You, what do you want me to do? Like, where is he? And she goes, I told you where he is. He's in the morgue. And my daughters were in the car. So I had to, like, compose myself and um, drop them off. And then I went up to his mother's house. My oldest daughter, she was 16 at the time. She had such a breakdown, like that the blood vessels in her eyes popped. Oh. Um, and so, and so, you know, and it was around Thanksgiving time. We had to get his body back from California, all this type of thing. I told you guys earlier about all the eulogies that I've done. I'm pretty good at like writing, uh, you know, you know, capturing, you know, memories and people's personalities. His is the only eulogy I don't remember. And so, um, you know, I let my oldest daughter go to the wake. I didn't let the youngest because she was only eight at the time. And I didn't want her that to be her last memory of him. Oh, and really? I feel like that's very traumatic. Yeah. So what had happened is, you know, I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't showering. Um, his backpack got delivered to my house. Right. So I believe addiction. We also have an enemy that wants like. Oh, the devil. There yeah, is a devil. Yeah. yeah. And so I believe addiction is like a tactic of the enemy. And so here I am doing all like this good work and helping all these people. And so like, why not? This is his way to take me out. So the backpack gets delivered to the house. Nobody's home. I'm not sleeping, not showering, not eating. And I find a 40 of like black tie heroin in the uh, in the backpack. The, the people who sent it didn't know it was in course, there. They yeah, didn't they like, bomb you, they yeah. would, you know, and so like in my mind and like, I'd rather you beat the shit out of me than feel emotional pain. And like this pain, I, you know, even though I had lost so many people and I started becoming desensitized in a lot of ways, like all these losses, like this was one that obviously was like, like crippling me. And so. Uh, I thought about it for like a few seconds and like was like literally this close. And I said, to, I said, God, you have to help me. And when I said that, he reminded me of the image of my oldest daughter laying over her father's casket, begging him to wake up. And then I flushed it down the toilet. And so like, here's the thing. Somebody like the only thing that I can attribute to me flushing that down the toilet is God. There's just no other explanation. Yeah. Like I just didn't do that in my own strength. Um, and, you know, it's the only, only explanation for me. But, um, like I said, I've lost so many friends. Um, it continues to happen every month, every September, cause September is recovery month. Oh, it is? Yep. Uh, August is overdose awareness That's month and, and September is okay. recovery month. And so I do a vigil every year in honor of all those that we've lost. Um, this will be the 15th annual Charlestown candlelight vigil. And it's not just people from Charlestown whose pictures are in the slideshow. It's people from all over. Yeah, it's a there, there's over 300 pictures. Um, and so like every year, like 
when I have to edit the slideshow, I'm remembering all the people that we've lost over the years, but then adding new pictures. That's crazy to me. Yeah. You know what I keep going back to my mind? And I know this is insane to keep thinking about, but I'm a numbers guy. So you mm-hmm. keep saying one square mile. Mm-hmm. That's nuts. So, so Charleston had, Charleston had the highest fatal overdose rate in Massachusetts at well, once, in that, the early 2000s. They, the bang thing, they yeah. had this. They had I know. a lot of trouble in this We're small all mile. impacted because we all are so close-knit wow. and like know each other. So like, you know, to be able to work back in the com- and give back to the community that I used in and that I overdosed in and that I, I recovered in is like just it's a gift, right? It's it, such a gift. It's, it's a purpose. It's like it really is. Like we talk about the purpose driven life. Mm-hmm. Like it is a purpose. You know, mm-hmm. I always say that I don't want to be remembered for like what I did in my financial business. Yep. I don't want to remember being service people, yeah. but I don't want to remember for what I make, or what I buy, or what my kids have. I want to be rubbish for like the impact I left to people. And I think that's know? one of the biggest things that sometimes like when people are in recovery and then and and something's missing or they continue to relapse. I think that's like we're made for human connection. That the opposite of addiction is connection. And so like I didn't know that somebody else said that to me. Connecting with other people and serving others is what fills that hole, that God-sized hole in your heart that nothing else, cars, sex, so money, true. drugs is never gonna gonna fill, you know. Um, but you know, after he passed away, I, I did get married. So, so my husband, uh, we were off and on for a few years and we got married in 2017 and he, he said vows to my two oldest daughters and, um, you know, he's really such a good dad. And so like, he didn't grow up with his like real father either. He did grow up with a stepfather, um, I didn't grow up with a father. My two oldest girls, their father was in and out cause he was using. So like to have this man who's like such a great dad and, and his like focus is just to like work and take care of his family yeah, is nice. it's the complete opposite of what I had growing up. That's right. It's like the opposite of addiction. You just yeah, say connection. Yeah, and yeah, now you've connected yeah. with somebody who, you know, uh, you, his name's never come up and you've never said it like, Oh, what an ass. That. Mm-hmm. That's nice. Mm-hmm. Cause usually whenever you talk to a girl about their husband, at some point, yeah, he's a good guy. No, but, oh, he's an ass. I mean, no, we're all asses, but yeah, no but relationship, point, but, no relationship is perfect. Yeah. No marriage is, is perfect. I would never ever badmouth my husband to anybody. Well, that's the way it should. The thing is, and I'm not going to let you do it either. Yeah, well, yeah. I don't care who you are. <laughs> yeah, I, I just think it's the same thing. I just, it's, it's solid. It's about mm-hmm. being like a good, for guys, I can tell you from a men's point of view, like, like we're talking about, like, because you were so independent, mm-hmm. I always say this. As a guy, you want to provide for your family, you want to protect your family, mm-hmm. you want to love your family, but you want to be hard to the outside world. Mm-hmm. And that's, and when any of those things are threatened or when the, your spouse doesn't allow you to do those things or, you know, and I always say, even when I go through what I'm going through right now, I, my, my ex drives me bonkers in mm-hmm. a lot of ways because I feel like, you know, there's mm-hmm. certain things we could come together better on. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if anyone else bad there, I'd be like, you know, yeah, of course. I mean, don't yeah. wrong, some close friends of mine, mm-hmm. I'll be like, hey, Ryan, I don't know if that's fit, you know, because they, they had to be there for you. I will tell you, you talk about being of service to people. So there's a guy I know from the program, and he is going through divorce. There's two guys I know go through divorce, but mm-hmm. one's is messy. Mm-hmm. He hadn't seen his kids for a while. And he called me for advice, and I'm thinking to myself, like, I don't have that experience. Like, I'm still seeing my kids. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not getting along, but she hasn't moved out yet. Like, we're still, like, mm-hmm. and these, him and his ex, but I would take his calls. I give him the best advice I can. I say, pray on it. You know, ask to be of service. When your son comes around, he starts beating you up because you didn't talk for a while to him. He was mad to talk. He wouldn't talk to you. He's gonna shit on you and just smile and say, you know what? I see where you come from. I get your point. Mm-hmm. And by being of service to this guy, 
And I would have to pray on the instant. I didn't know. Mm -hmm. So like I tell you, I'm stuck on the God thing a little at times, but mm -hmm. I still pray like a son mm -hmm. of a bitch. And I, and I do get guidance. Yeah. Um, I just don't have the clarity of the, my relationship like I used to have. Mm -hmm. But being able to be a services guy has, has set me free immensely with my own pain that I'm going mm -hmm. through. Has allowed me to be truly focused and bring God into it. Because if it's just my stuff, I'm like, where yeah. are you? Mm -hmm. But when I'm getting inspiration, what's the same guidance? I'm like, geez, you're right. You're on fire. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and that, but that's the whole thing. Like with, with God too. Like, where are you? Like when we're going through something, like I believe like he allows certain things, like allows us to go through certain things so that he can, like when I was in the Meridian house, I didn't understand at the time why I was getting picked on and or I was getting in trouble. Now I do. It strengthened me and shaped me. And like, you know, now I could be revealed. I can handle anything. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know. I, I sometimes look at it as like, God's up there and like the world is like this chessboard that like he's moving around. And so like none of us are promised tomorrow, like in this life, we will have trial and tribulation. And so like, that's where faith comes in. Like we have to persevere and, and push through things, you know, um, there's a, there's one of my, my favorite scripture that I stand on and it's like speaks to my life and it's Jeremiah 29, 11. And it's for the, for, I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. I like that. I know, that's my favorite. I know. I have like five, six scriptures I run off usually. Like, you know, if ye have faith is great, it must mm -hmm. see nothing to be impossible unto you. Whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing ye mm -hmm. shall receive. Um, in fact, I have a thing on my wall that says, uh, the devil whispered in my ear today, mm -hmm. um, you're not strong enough to within the, withstand the storm. Yeah. And then it says, today I, I whisper, yeah, I am the yeah. fucking storm. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like when I'm coming up against the hard thing, I glass yeah. people and they announced they were going to bust my cookies in. I go, my well, like, you could turn, you know, it's going to be kind of a storm. I go, it's funny you should mm -hmm. say it. I go, I mm -hmm. am the fucking storm. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and it's funny though, the, the freedom you get. Now I was thinking when you were talking, Meridian House for you was almost like a boot camp for you go through your mother and your ex. Mm -hmm. Really? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, who knows if you would have had that strength. Yep. That old Irish guy mm -hmm. busting your cookies. Yeah. You know? So he, so I don't know if you know, so like the Somerville Boxing Club, he's, yeah, worked, he's worked there for years. What's his name? His name's Tony, Tony Carey. I know, an Irish guy named Tony. I, I don't know, get it either. Stony, right? Yeah. So they just took the Somerville City, I mean, the Somerville Boxing Club, they shut it down, the city. Yeah. So now Tony is looking for, so he's been running the Somerville Boxing Club for years. And so now he's, we helped find him a space in Charlestown. Oh, did you find a space for Yeah, him? it's called the town, going to be called the town boxing. Oh my God, it's going to drive some of these guys nuts. <laughs> my buddy Mikey Evans goes in, my buddy John, you know, John, the construction sheet who comes by here. Those guys, go, my friends are good boxers, I'm not. Yeah, yeah. So so, so let me, so let's wrap up with this. Yeah. I want to go back once more about the stuff. You're so the, the, what's your um, social media stuff? Uh, for the nonprofit, yes. so the nonprofit is called Scars in Heaven, and right. so uh, we do have a Facebook page and we have an Instagram page. Uh, currently working on a website because all the same thing. Scars in Heaven. Scars okay, in Heaven. Cool. Yes, and so uh, the Venmo is at Scars in Heaven, and so the the mission of Scars in Heaven is to help people. Uh, compassionately lift the financial burden um, when they lose a loved one to a substance-related cause and don't have the means to can bury them. That, can I yeah. say that in English? So yeah. that means if somebody <laughs> if somebody dies and the family doesn't have the money to bury them, we don't want to leave them high and dry to help them do the right, right thing. Right, right. And there is a vetting process, but also want to use the funds to um, help people that are in their recovery process uh, give them a sober living scholarship opportunities, um, you know, yeah. Yeah. And right. while, and also educate people around the, uh, about overdose and addiction. Cool. I got to hook you up with you, Mike Higgins. Yeah. He was a PO at Uber and he was my PO. He's retired. He runs the outreach thing. And, um, 
Bill Rickers, somebody overdoses, he shoots up the house the next day. And uh, he'd be a yeah. good guy if you can't. Yeah, so I used to also do that. I used to be on the overdose squad yeah. uh, with the Boston Police Department. Okay. And so, like, when, so I would go to the home of the individual um, who overdosed in the community with a BPD officer in plain clothes so that they, yeah. you know, just to let them know that we're offering resources and supports, you know, and want them to get that's help. Mike, that's yeah. Mike's yeah. now there. Yeah. Um, Vin Piero, I don't know if you know Vin well, but you mm-hmm. should be, I'd like to connect you with him as well. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. You did an awesome job, awesome. sister. You, you right. crushed it. Let, let me know if you need a permanent co-host. <laughs> all right. Yeah, we need fun. We, next right. time Thank we you need guys. to interview somebody fun, we should bring you on. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.